0: The Holy Spirit's here. Let's dig in. Let's dig in and eat. We are in Mark chapter 4. This is message number 17 in Mark's gospel, if you're keeping track. Uh, If you're new to us here at Fellowship, you're watching online for the first time uh, on Facebook right now, uh, we are studying through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. Uh, We just dig into the text together. I do my best to try to explain it, but I'm also trusting that you're studying it on your own and and that you are seeking the Lord for truth as we come to this. Because that's really the responsibility of all of us as we look at God's Word to try to understand what the text is saying, to apply it to our lives, and then to begin to live it out. Amen? That, that's, that's our responsibility. And so let's dig in together and eat God's Word today, uh, and even as we read it together here. Uh, Verse 1 is where we are, Mark chapter 4 and verse 1. The message title, if you're using the note sheet, is, What Kind of Dirt Are You? I'm not intending to be insulting, but that truly is the question. You have to decide this morning what kind of dirt you are. So Mark chapter 4 and verse 1, let's read. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Let's pause there for a moment. We will look at verses 14 through 20 in just a few minutes as well. So Jesus already stated that the very reason that he came, the very reason for his ministry was to preach. That is his primary goal. In his earthly ministry, you can go back and you can look at Mark chapter 1 and throughout the chapters we've already studied, we've, we've already been there, so I'm not going to take you through that again, but the primary goal of Christ during his earthly ministry was to preach the coming kingdom, to preach the gospel, to call people to repent and to believe the gospel. Proclaiming the kingdom was his highest priority in his ministry. Now what about the healings? Jesus cared about people. <laughs> Absolutely. He, he loved people. He wanted to improve their lives, and we're not going to uh, minimize that in any way, and he did that significantly by performing miracles, and we've studied some of those already. The man with the withered hand, the crippled man, right? He's, he's already healed people. He's brought healing, and he's improved the lives of people in that way. What about the exorcisms that we've looked at? Jesus Attacked the powers of darkness and he set captives free. We've seen that already. We've heard him talk about binding the strong man when two weeks ago on a Sunday morning when we studied uh, the eternal and unforgivable sin. Jesus talks about binding the strong man and that's the reason that he was casting demons out was to prove his power over Satan, that Satan is a punk, he's a dog on a chain, and that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is infinitely more powerful than he is. Jesus is the creator, Satan is creation. Satan is not able to do anything outside of the will of the Father. So it's all important. However, these miracles were also to confirm his message so that people could witness the power of the kingdom. The primary reason for the miracles was to give evidence to the message that Jesus was proclaiming. And so Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach by the sea and that a very large crowd gathers around to hear him. Now the people, as we look in the first few verses there, the people keep pushing forward. They keep attempting to move closer to him. Of course. I mean, this is bigger than any rock concert. This is bigger than any sporting event. People are being healed. And even if you're not one of those people in need of healing, you still want to see it. You want to see what's happening. And so people keep pushing forward towards Christ. So much so that he sits in a boat. It's his escape route, if necessary. Okay, let's go, guys. You know, they're coming into the water now. We better get out of here right? And he continues to preach in parables, as the text tells us. Now, last week, if you were here with us, we studied verses 9 through 13, and we talked about why Jesus spoke in parables. And so we kind of took the middle section out of that, and today we're looking at verses 1 through 8, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, as it's been called throughout church history. Uh, and then we're looking at the interpretation of that in verses 14 through 20. So that's where we are today. So we're focusing in on this one parable this morning. We're going to look at many more in the weeks to come. But look at verse 3 with me. Jesus says here, "akoueto edu in Greek. Akueto edu. These are imperative verbs. There's no wiggle room in the original Greek. There's no way to misunderstand how Jesus is saying this. It's an imperative verb. It's a command. Jesus Christ starts off this parable by saying, Akueto edu. Akueto is where we get our English word acoustics. Akueto acoustics, okay? It's where English, that English word comes from. It translated into English, it's listen, hear me. And and it's not a suggestion. (laughs) Jesus is saying, listen, listen to what I'm about to say. Hear me right now. What I'm about to say is very important. And then he couples it with the Greek word edu, akueto edu, edu is behold. Again, it's an imperative verb, it's a command. Behold, look, see me. Christ is sitting in this boat, and there's an enormous crowd of people, and he says, Listen to me and see me. Don't miss what I'm about to say. It's what he's saying to the crowd. He's commanding the full attention of his audience for what he is about to tell them is of supreme importance. And in this parable, the parable of the sower... Bible scholars say, is foundational to understanding all of the other kingdom parables. It's the one that sets the stage. It's where Jesus communicates how important it is to really, truly listen to his words. It lays the foundation. And so having their attention, he says to them, a sower went out to sow. We might say a farmer went out to plant seeds. Same thing. Dr. R.C. Sproul explains the method used by farmers of the states. A little different. Uh, I, th- I believe we have some folks in here who have done some farming in their lives and, and probably many more who have planted gardens. Well, the way they did it back then was a little different. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, at that time and place, The land was not cleared of stones and plowed before the seed was planted. The common way of planting was to go out and scatter the seed and then plow. In fact, the term plow has little relation to what we think of as plowing today. In ancient Israel, a plow was little more than a pointed stick in which one broke up the soil a little so that some seed would sink in. So do you have this picture in your mind? When a farmer or a sower went out to sow seed, they basically just went and just started throwing. They had done nothing to the field to prepare it in advance, but they just walked through the place where they were going to plant seed and start throwing, haphazardly almost. I'm just going to throw it everywhere, and then we'll see what happens. And then they would go back, and they would poke holes in the ground with a stick, hoping that some of that seed would fall in, and begin to grow. A little bit different than how our farmers do it today. So what happens to these seeds? We might think that all of them would fall into the soil and produce a crop, but and, and that would be great, but that's not how Jesus' story goes. Look at verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. The seeds fall on four different types of dirt. It's important to realize this as we look at this. And it's the type of dirt that determines the outcome. The seeds fall on four different types of ground, and it's the type of ground that determines the outcome. The first type of soil is the path that we see here in verse 4. It's hard-packed, like a path would be. Many people have walked on it. They've crushed it down. It's a hard-packed path. The seed scattered here is is left exposed. It's just laying on top of the path. And so what happens? Well, birds come down and eat it up. It doesn't last very long. Look what Jesus says next. Verse 5, "'Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away.'" The seed lasts, this seed lasts a little bit longer than the, in, in the second type of soil than the first. And, and what is the second type of soil? The Greek word here is petrodes. And petrodes literally means rocky ground. It was a word that they had for this type of situations. It's, it's rocky ground. And, and what it references is a very, thin layer of topsoil that would be over top of bedrock. So picture almost solid rock and then a very thin layer of topsoil on top of that solid rock. There's just not enough soil for the seed to germinate quickly, but the bedrock prevents it and prevents the seed from establishing deep roots. So at first, it, it It kind of takes hold a little bit, but then it hits that bedrock, and it stops, and it can't develop a deep root system. For that reason, it's not able to go deep enough to draw water from the ground, and it's scorched by the sun, and it withers. Well, there's a third type of seed. Let's look at this, verse 7. And then Jesus said, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. The seed thrown in the third type of soil lasts a little bit longer. It appears as though there's a little bit more growth. But this soil is full of thorns. The seed in this soil isn't eaten by the birds or or scorched by the sun. However, before it's able to produce grain, it's choked by these thorns that are also in the ground. Thankfully, there's a fourth type of soil that the seed lands in. Look at verse 8 with me. And other seed fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Notice that the sower throws the seed everywhere. What happens to the seed, again, church, is dependent on the type of soil that the seed lands on. So how should we understand this parable? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. Jesus gives us the explanation. He tells his followers, and praise God, Mark records it for us. So here's where I want you to jump to verse 14 in the text, and let's read the explanation of it so that we can understand with full assurance what Christ is saying to his immediate disciples, but also to us today. Jesus says, the sower sows the word, and these are the one along the path where the word is sown. When they hear Satan When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So in this parable, who's the sower? Well, let's do what we call exegesis before we do hermeneutics. Exegesis is just a fancy word that Bible scholars gave to understanding what the text meant originally to the original audience. Hermeneutics is, well, what does it mean to us today? So before we try to decide what it means to us today, we ought to know what it meant to them then. With me? Go like this if you are. All right, awesome. So what is the point of this parable? Who's the the sower? In the original context, the sower is Christ. When Jesus first tells this story to this enormous crowd, he's the sower. He's the one giving the word. He's the one preaching the kingdom. He's the one calling people to repent and to believe. What is the seed in the story, in the parable? Well, in the original context... It's the words of Jesus as he proclaimed the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance and belief. It's the message itself. That's what the seed represents. The parable itself, the parable of the sower that we are looking at right now, mirrors the response, church, that Jesus is getting to the proclamation of his message. We can see this because we very carefully have studied through the first three chapters of Mark's gospel. And so if you've been tracking with us on this, this should be somewhat clear. This is, these are the responses that Christ has been getting to his message. You'll remember with me that there have been those that we have looked at so far who have been antagonistic to the message of Christ. Who are they? The Pharisees. The scribes, the teachers of the law, most recently the Sanhedrin that's been coming up from Jerusalem to check him out, to discredit him, and to begin to plot his demise and even his death. They're antagonistic toward the message. Uh, There are those who were coming out, and we've talked about this many times, out to be healed or to witness a miracle. This is the crowd. They were present. They were there. But they weren't believing, and they weren't trusting in him as the king, and they weren't trusting in the reality of the coming kingdom. And there were those who were truly listening and responding to his message, his disciples and his followers. The words of Jesus, now don't miss this, because this is what he's saying. A sower went out to sow, and he cast seed everywhere. The words of Jesus went to everyone like seed being scattered across a field without regard for the soil that it fell on. It went to the antagonistic. It went to the uninterested. And it went to the receptive. The seed went everywhere. The message was proclaimed to everyone. To those who would reject it, and fight against it, and even try to kill the messenger. To those who would be completely uninterested, that were only looking to see a miracle, or to be healed themselves, or to have a demon cast out, to improve the quality of their lives in the then and now, but they weren't interested in the proclamation of the kingdom, and the seed, the message also went to the receptive. Look at verse 15 with me because here Jesus begins to unpack each one of these. And he says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. The path represents hard-hearted individuals. Here's the explanation of the parable. The path represents the hard-hearted. They're not listening. They're hardened to the gospel. They're unresponsive to the message. And in this immediate context, who do you think Jesus is referencing? I, I believe he's addressing the Pharisees and the scribes. So often when Jesus told stories, it was because of who was sitting there in the crowd. And he was nailing somebody to the wall. I love Luke 15. I'm not preaching Luke 15 this morning, so this has to be really brief. But Jesus tells the three parables, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And when he gets to the parable of the lost son, who does the older son represent in that parable? The Pharisees and the scribes. And this is how Jesus taught. He thought about who was present, and he was making a point to them. And here I believe in verse 15, when he's talking about the path, he wants the Pharisees, he wants the teachers of the law For it to sink into their hearts, because as antagonistic as they have been towards him, I believe he still wants them to be redeemed. He still wants them to change and to hear his words. And so he wants them to have the epiphany, the realization, I'm the path. I'm who he's talking about. I'm hard-hearted. I'm not hearing the message. Many of them, though, as Christ said, the passage we looked at two Sundays ago, have already committed the eternal and unforgivable sin. They're teaching that he's possessed by a demon and that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Their minds are closed to the truth, their hearts are hardened, and their path is set. But Jesus still throws out the seed. Don't miss that. Don't ever give up on somebody, little commercial break. You might think the person you're sharing the gospel with or you're trying to love into the kingdom or the family member that you're praying for, you might think they're never, ever going to hear me. They're never going to respond to the gospel. Keep spreading the seed, church. Keep sharing the message, no matter how hard You think someone's heart is. It's what Christ did. He kept saying it, even to these. He's talking to them. Look at verse 16. He goes to the next type of soil, and he says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they heard the word, immediately received it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endured for a while. Then, when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I think here the next soil represents those who are initially welcoming to the gospel. Initially, there's something about the message that's either entertaining to them or sounds intriguing to them. However, there's never any depth. There's never any depth, and they quickly fall away. They do not truly turn from their sin, and this is important. I'll emphasize this a couple more times, but they don't truly turn from their sin, and they don't truly trust in Christ for salvation, the people represented here in verses 16 and 17. In this immediate context, I believe Jesus is addressing the crowd. The crowd is not following him. They're swarming him. They want to be there for the healings, the exorcisms. They want to witness a miracle, but they will be. Quick to disappear. We'll see this in Mark, but if you really want to see this clearly, read John's gospel. The moment Jesus starts teaching hard truth, what it means to truly be a follower of his, they're gone. Wait wait a minute. What's he talking about? Eating his flesh? Drinking his blood? Let's go home and see what's on TV. Well, maybe not that, but... Let's go to this guy down the road who's preaching a much more palatable message to us. Maybe he's the Messiah. Yeah, in today's church world, this guy, this preacher, talks way too much about sin. Let's go down the road to this church. That guy never talks about sin, he just makes us feel good. So that's what I think is happening here. The crowd leaves, the crowd leaves when the message gets hard. Church, don't miss that the assumption of verse 17, and I'm going to take just a quick minute on this, but the assumption of verse 17, because this ties into the whole thing about the crowd and the follower, right? The assumption of verse 17 is that trials and persecution will be a part of the Christian life. It will be. If you're following Christ, it will be a part of the Christian life. Trials and persecution. I don't know that we really recognize it because we're just way too soft in the United States. We don't know what persecution is. We don't really know what this is yet. But Jesus says it's going to be a part of it, and it's backed up in the New Testament. I'm just going to take you through some passages really quick. Uh, Jesus is going to teach elsewhere. He's going to say this. This is later in Mark's gospel in chapter 13, if you want the reference. But he says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to councils. Now, he's talking immediately to His disciples, but as we'll see as we go through some other New Testament passages, that it's reaffirmed. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before the governors and kings, for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Christ here, I believe, is talking about the end times in this. So he's talking about a future reality for us. He said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, for the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's not the only time we see that. We see that throughout the New Testament. Just a, a few more quickies here. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says that the light momentary affliction that the Corinthians are facing is preparing them for the eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison. He's saying to the Christians in Corinth, You're going through a really tough time right now. You're being persecuted for my sake. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have been in prison. Some of, some of you have even been killed. But listen, it's just a momentary affliction and it has no comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. He says to the Thessalonians, That no one be moved. By These afflictions. Again, talking about persecution, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What's he saying? He's saying the Lord told us. He's saying, hey, look, before you signed up for this gig to be a follower of Christ, you knew that persecution was a part of it. He writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, right before this is right before Paul's going to be executed. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes, Indeed, all Who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul writes, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Persecution, affliction is a part of the deal, brothers and sisters. And only, listen, Only deep spiritual roots will keep us from failing when trials come. Now, maybe there's some people in the room who have experienced this to a little little degree. You've been turned down for a promotion. You've had people give you awkward looks at work because they know that you're one of those Bible-banging evangelical Christians because you've actually been out there a little bit about your faith and You've actually talked about it a little bit, and they know who you are. And I've had that happen to me. I'm sitting in a meeting at Community Mental Health in Saginaw County with a bunch of other people on the team. I was contracting with CMH there through my business, and these two ladies are sitting across the table from me, and they start talking about their relatives who are Bible-banging evangelical Christians and how they're dreading spending Thanksgiving with them. And then they look up. And they remember that I'm the token pastor on the team, that CMH had hired me because I was a pastor, and they wanted to bring in church people, because guess what? Church people are the only people who volunteer anymore. And so they knew they had a great volunteer base they could draw from, but they needed a pastor to help them get it done. And so they look up, and they see that I'm there, and they're like, oh, we're sorry. I'm like, ah, I get it all time. But that's the closest to persecution I think I've ever come. We don't get it yet. We don't get it, praise God, because we have religious liberty in our country, right? And we want that to remain because Paul also wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He said, pray for your leaders. Pray that you'll live in peace. And the argument that he lays out in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that it's in peace that the gospel goes forward the best. And so we don't invite persecution. We don't want to be persecuted, but there's a very real reality church in which persecution may come, and when it does, will we be ready? And I'm telling you right now, the only thing that's going to keep you sitting in these pews, keep you following Christ, if persecution does come to our country, is deep spiritual roots. It ain't going to work on the bedrock with a thin lo- layer of soil. This ain't going to happen. You're not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. If our roots don't go deep, we will not be here. Some seed falls on the path, some on the rocky ground. Let's go to verse 18. Others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful the next soil represents those who seem to receive the gospel it looks like it. it looks like they've received the message what's being talked about here in verses 18 through 19 but it's only a facade it's not real they last a little bit longer than the first two It appears good for a time, but there's no real commitment, and they do fall away. The Greek word here is merimini, and it translates to the English word cares. The cares of the world is the phrase, the merimini of the world. And merimini references concerns, anxiety that the challenges of life can bring. Here's what it really comes down to for this third group. The present life is more important to them than the life to come. This reality is more important to them than the reality to come, than the spiritual reality, than the kingdom. The kingdom that they're building now is more important than Christ's kingdom. I want to say this because at times I've, I've preached this idea in kind of an extreme way. And, and I just want, I want to say this very clearly. There's nothing wrong with money and wealth in itself. Absolutely nothing wrong with money and wealth in itself. It's necessary. And if the Lord blesses you financially, you, just like the person living in poverty, you have a responsibility to be a good steward of his resources. That's your responsibility. Whatever that looks like, whatever decisions the Holy Spirit causes you to make in that regard. However, the love of it, please hear me on this, the love of money and wealth will lead you to a very dark place. The love of money and wealth, and this has nothing to do, by the way, because I, not that certainly have never been wealthy in my life, but, but I've lived in affluence and I've lived in poverty, more or less, and, and I will say that it can grip your heart Whether you're poor or rich, the love of money can grip your heart, whether you're poor or rich. The love of it will lead you to a dark place that is characterized by greed, by envy, and by selfishness. So don't fall into that. Don't love money and wealth. Seed falls on the path, church. Seed falls on the rocky ground. Seed falls among the thorns. But praise the Lord that the words of Jesus are received by some. Amen. Look at verse 20, because here we see that as we close out the parable here and his explanation of the parable. He says, but those that were sown on the good soil, this is the fourth type of soil, are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The first three groups, don't miss this. The first three groups represent people who were never saved. The first three types of soil represent those who had never truly trusted in Christ. But this final soil represents those who actively listen to the word of Christ. Listening to the word of Christ transforms them. They turn from their sin and they trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Sin, the cares of the world, opposition, It might seek to hinder the growth of the kingdom in their hearts, but Jesus calls them to hear the gospel, and they do. Jesus calls them to respond to the gospel and to accept it, and they do. Jesus Jesus calls them to share the gospel, and they do. They bear fruit. That's the characteristic of someone who has heard the gospel and responded and accepted the gospel is that they then bear fruit. He says it right here. That's how you know is that there's fruit from that person's life. Do- Dr. Daniel Aiken writes this about. It. He says, "The kingdom of God, through the preaching of the gospel, will break into the world like seed being sown by a farmer. It will fall in various places, receive various responses, but eventually experience a tremendous harvest." The message of the parable for Christians is clear we must sow the seed of the gospel that others might hear and respond. Amen? That's our takeaway. If you are here and you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, then you've heard it and you've accepted it. Now you need to share it. Because that's the characteristic of someone who's heard and accepted the truth. But please don't miss it. This is the only soil in the parable that represent true believers. There was an idea in Christianity for a time, and thankfully it's fallen out of popularity, this whole idea of a carnal Christian. It's someone who accepted Christ, but there was never any fruit in their life? That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's nothing biblical about that whatsoever. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. If you are a Christ follower, then you're bearing fruit. And if you don't see that you're bearing fruit then maybe you need to pray and repent and turn to Christ anew. Maybe it's time to get that right. The characteristic of a true Christ follower is that they produce fruit. Jesus is going to say it so much more clearly later in his ministry. John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, "'I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing.'" So how should we understand this parable? I think we've been, I've been giving application as we've been walking through it, but let me just kind of tie it all up for you. What's, what's the application for us today? We've done the hard work of exegesis. What did it mean to them back then? Now let's do hermeneutics. Let's apply it to our own lives. How should we apply this? Who's the sower now? The sower now is anyone who shares the message of the kingdom. It's you. It's you. You're the sower anytime you share the gospel with someone, Anytime you talk to someone about your faith, a family member, a loved one, a neighbor, a co-worker, anyone. You're the sower. It's anyone who sows the seed of the gospel. What's the seed now? That's never changed. It's the word of Christ. The seed is the gospel. It's the only thing worth talking about. It's the only thing worth preaching about. The seed is the gospel. What about the four types of soil? Well, they represent us. They represent four different types of people, just like they did back in the time of Christ. Dr. Mark Strauss ties this all nicely up. I'm just going to read a little bit of his commentary to you as we close here on how he applies this parable. It's beautifully written. He says, The same message that Jesus proclaimed, the coming of the kingdom of God and the need to repent and believe, is the message his church proclaims today. Well, it should be anyway. Sadly, not all churches have stuck to that message, and they've moved on to other things, I guess. But we at Fellowship Baptist are going to continue to proclaim the gospel, amen, <laughs> without wavering. And praise God, I'm so thankful that we have called four new volunteer elders to hold Pastor Ken and myself accountable to that. Four guys that can slap us up aside the head if we ever waver to anything else and they're pretty tough guys. I wouldn't want to be slapped by any of them. The same message that Jesus proclaimed, the coming of the kingdom of God and the need to repent and believe is the message his church proclaims today, and people respond to it in a variety of ways. Here are the different responses today. He makes this very real. He says, for some it never gets through, and it's snatched away by Satan's lies, such as there is no God, or that personal pleasure, fame, or wealth is the ultimate goal of life, or that success comes through personal effort and self-reliance. We've heard all of those messages, and that's, those are tools that Satan, use, Satan uses to snatch the gospel from us. For others, the message sounds good and is welcomed with joy, but it never penetrates beyond a superficial level of faith. It is based on emotionalism or is inherited from family. But it has no roots of its own. For these, church is a nice social club to meet and develop friendships. The essence of Christianity is being a good person. The idea of radical commitment to the kingdom and its mission remains an alien concept. That's the rocky ground. But still for others, they hear the message and are even assimilated into the community of faith. And we've all seen this. People who come and they come for a time and they're a part of us and then they walk away. And I don't just mean from a church, I mean from Christ. They're even assimilated into the community of faith, but the distractions of the world, its worries and wealth, mean that faith never results in transformation. But praise God for this last group, and it happens today all the time, church. But others respond to the message and they persevere until they bear fruit. Bearing fruit could mean bringing others to Christ, but it is much broader than this. It is a life change that results in transformation until we share God's values for the world and develop the mind of Christ. If I put it into my own words, I would say, until we grow into spiritual maturity. He who began a good work in you, finish it for me, we will carry it into completion. Amen. That's what we're shooting for here. We want the seed to land on good soil in your hearts. And then once you've received it and it begins to grow and you truly trust in Christ for your salvation, that you then continue to grow. And as you're growing, you bear fruit and more seed is planted, and more people grow, and more people come into worshiping the King, and they come into the kingdom. Amen, church? Amen. Worship team, come on up. Let's respond with a song this morning. And as they come, let me just share with you what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Um, I can't walk you through in the 30 seconds, the entire book of Romans, but uh, he he has just written all this beautiful theology, pages and pages of beautiful theological truth to Christians in Rome. And then he writes the statement of worship right before he gets to chapter 12. He didn't call it chapter 12, but for our sake, that's what we call it. He writes this beautiful statement of worship. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. But then he explains how we ought to live. He tells the Roman Christians how we ought to live in response to everything that Jesus has done for us. He spent all those pages talking about the gospel and the change that happens because of Christ in our lives. And then he worships, but then he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. Father, that's our desire. Our desire is now having been that soil where the word of Christ, the gospel message, has fallen on and has taken root in our lives. And we've turned from our sin, Jesus, and we have turned to you for salvation, trusting in you Alone, Christ. And, and my prayer, if even the, if there's one person here this morning who has never done that, Lord, may they today, before they leave this room, may they cry out to you in their heart, turning from their sin and turning to you, trusting in you alone for their salvation. But Lord, now is we as people who have made that decision and, and we have this new life within us because of you, Christ. Lord, we want to continue to grow. We want to see that harvest in our lives, Lord. We want that fruit to be born within us, Lord, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, so that your kingdom would grow, your kingdom, Christ, not our kingdom. We've left our kingdoms behind, but that your kingdom, Christ, would be revealed in the lives of many more that more people would come into your presence and worship you, Jesus, and find new and abundant life in you for your glory, for your glory here in this community, for your glory around the world, for your glory, Jesus, in our families, and for your glory in our own hearts, Lord. May it be done. In Jesus' name, amen.